This is Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Arabile Gumede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic 1027. Good morning. It's just gone two minutes after seven. You're listening to Classic Business Breakfast. Myself, Nastasia Aransa, not alone this morning. Arabile Gumere in studio with me. Yeah, good morning indeed. So a whole host of issues happening across the board. And we certainly did hear quite a bit overnight. A lot happening with regards to the mining in Daba as well. And President Cyril Ramaphosa even addressing delegates there. And we got to get word from him as well with regards to the land issue. So we'll chat about quite a few things as well throughout the show today, Tash. And on the topic of President Sol Ramaphosa's address, he did take the time to ease concerns at the mining in Dubbo, which is underway in Cape Town. But on the side of that, we had uh, Anglo-American CEO Mark Kurifani saying that ESCOM is the biggest risk to the business in the short term. So we'll talk to Peter Majors, a mining analyst at Katie's Corporate Solutions, about those sentiments that the CEO did utter. And we'll also talk to him about the mood at the mining in Dubbo this year, because I'm sure he is there on the ground. Mm. And even though the board of the PIC, the Public Investment Corporation, did ask to step down, they are still in place for now at the very least until uh, Finance Minister Tito Mboweni is able to appoint a new board. But would this walkout of that board actually risk investments? Will it shake up sentiment towards the PIC? Does it mean that things might alter and change towards South Africa with regards to investment? Or will it just be business as usual? We'll chat about that around 7.20. And today, the Pretoria High Court will hear an application brought by environmental organizations Groundwork and Earthlife Africa for the handover of various documents relating to the judicial review of the environmental authorizations granted to two coal-fired power station uh, preferred bidders. So we'll speak to them. One of them is uh, Nicole Loza, who is an attorney with the Centre for environmental rights about what exactly the issue is. Also, what's in store for that pharmaceutical sector in 2019? Aspen pretty much scored a known goal towards the latter part of last year, but we'll chat about that and a whole lot more. Eric Ruiz, the CEO of Pharma Dynamics, gets to chat to us at 20 to 8. A whole lot coming through today between now and 8 o'clock. Let's get into your Wednesday edition. That's midweek, 6th of February 2019. That's Classic Business Breakfast with MoneyWeb. This is Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Arabile Gumede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic 1027. The market indicators are brought to you by FNB Business 48 hour cash accelerator. Great rates, great and fast access. Asian shares mostly rose this morning as investors digested U.S. President Donald Trump's State of the Nation address. In Japan, the Nikkei gained two-tenths of a percent. Over on Wall Street side, the Dow Jones closed 172 points higher at 25,411, led by Apple and Intel. The Nasdaq Composite uh, gained 0.7% to close just above 7,400 points. The S&P 500 climbed four-tenths of a percent to 2,736. On the back of gains from the tech, communication services and consumer discretionary sectors. Meanwhile, in Europe, the FTSE 100 jumped 1.5%, the French CAC up 1.4%, and the German DEX up 1.4% as well. Over here, uh, the All Share Index added. Uh, 1.5% in positive territory, 54,209 points, and the top 40 up 1.7%. This is Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. 
Arabile Gumede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic 1027. So as Taj said, a firm close to the JSE all share yesterday 1.5% in what was meant to be cautious trade. Does that seem like cautious trade to you, Michael Trahan, Portfolio Manager at Vestag Asset Management? Yeah, look, it was a fairly uh, slow start today. We were only barely up by midday. And then uh, as the afternoon went on, we just went stronger and stronger, which is always good to see. Mm, what, what spurred that on then? What, do you, what gets us going nowadays? I mean, it, it's hard to find a single catalyst in the market, is there? Yeah, and if you you consider that Asian markets are closed this week, mm. uh, so we're not even getting direction from the likes of Tencent, uh, not much going on. But I saw someone point out that uh, January was the best start to U.S. stocks uh, in uh, what since the 70s, I think they said. Sure. Um, we had jobs numbers out last week, which was a hundred consecutive months of growth. Yeah. Now, do you know what the second longest streak is? No. 48 months. So that we're on a hundred months of consecutive sure. mo- uh, of consecutive months of growth, and it wasn't even a small. Uh, we, w- the U.S. economy crushed that number. They got three hundred four thousand uh, new jobs out yeah. of the expected. I think is about one hundred sixty thousand. Yeah, almost. Um, sure. And you have the Fed saying that uh, guys, we're probably not going to raise interest rates anytime soon. And, and some analysts even going as far to say the Fed's next move, which probably won't be this year, will be even to, even to r- lower rates. There's even a chance of dropping rates here locally. Then they. they there are you know, a few sort of suspecting that towards the latter end of the year, we could even have the chance of a rate drop as well. Yeah, I think I was uh, with you guys last year when uh, uh, the Reserve Bank raised interest rates and I had a bit of a rant saying that they, <laughs> they're raising rates because they're expecting the rest of the world to raise rates. Yeah. Don't do that. Because um, if you have a look at the assumptions that they published that they used to uh, increase interest rates, a big part of it was that developed economies were going to triple their interest rates over mm-hmm. the next couple mm-hmm. of years. And the US is not going to raise rates anytime soon. Bank of England's definitely not raising rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, EU's got their own turmoil and japan uh, seems to be constantly in the threat of deflation so none of those banks are really going to be raising so uh yeah depending on how election goes this year and assuming everything goes according to plan and assuming that the rand actually strengthens once we've got more certainty particularly around the land issue yeah um and if the rand goes back to 11 12 range then the reserve bank's got lots of reason to to be actually dropping rates 1340 for now though so it's still still a while to go on that front do you think that they would perhaps try to keep rates where they are for the sort of medium term, if we can call it that, at least for the whole of this year? And that's purely not to weaken the rand any further. See, there's two arguments when it comes to the currency. The one argument is higher interest rates means that you've got more capital inflow for people buying your bonds, mm. which makes your currency stronger. Yeah. The problem, though, is when you've got high interest rates, you have lower growth rates. So all the people that were going to put money into your country for, for FDI, long-term capital investment, those guys aren't around anymore. So you've got to see which flow is greater. And my argument is in South Africa, the FDI flow is potentially stronger than the guys flowing in just for, for your bonds. Um, if we can get to a stage where we're growing at 5%, there's a far greater incentive for you to put your money in for long-term growth as opposed to just getting uh, bonds. So mm. my argument is if you actually drop interest rates, you probably actually see a strengthening of the rand over, over time.
Sure, that'll be that is hopeful, and and, and certainly hope uh, that uh, the governor Lesejachanyako is indeed heeding some sort of message with regards to that. So uh, a little bit with regards to company news uh, yesterday, uh, Anglo Platinum expecting that their headline earnings per share will double. Uh, from the prior comparative period and that's thanks to a boost from rising commodity prices so we've seen quite a few trading updates come through the mining sector seems uh, to be if, if i can call it in a slight recovery yeah so um, on what was it monday we had uh, impala platinum come out with yep. their numbers um, and the stock was up eight percent i was having a look it's up about 70 percent over the last 12 months uh, we have a look at anglo plats now they up 90% over the last 12 months, and uh, yesterday it was mostly flat. Sure. Um, but it's because partly, or I think actually a big part of it, is management took the tough decisions 12 to 18 months ago, saying, look, we've got to get rid of the operations that are marginal. Mm. Um, either we're going to sell them off, and Sabanya Gold, was, or Sabanya Stillwater now, yeah. was more than happy to, to buy some of these assets uh, from uh, a few of the players. Um, or you say we, we're just going to mothball operations and we're going to reduce our shafts numbers. I mean, I think Impala Platinum reduced uh, one of the, the Rustenburg shafts from 11 shafts to 5. Mm. Um, unfortunately, that comes with job cuts. Um, but what it does mean is that your company is unsustainable. You don't want to be in a position where you like Lonman, where Lonman loses money every year to pull Platinum out of the ground. Yeah. Uh, you want to be in a case where your company's strong because when your company's strong, the employees you stay behind are, are, have, a, have a job. Um, so you've got to, I suppose, be selfish for, for the company's sake. And unfortunately, that does lead to job losses sometimes. In the midst of the mining in Dawa currently happening, I, say, I suppose the sentiment is just how do we keep them revived or going strong at this point in time? And the, the need then is, despite the fact that we've got mining charter 3.0, there's a whole lot more to it, right? It's not just the charter itself, although that does give off a positive spin. Are we perhaps a little a little bit for lack of a better term greedy though because we wanted regulatory certainty we've got it and now it doesn't seem to be the the only sticking point that we now need to move the market yeah look i think uh, uh changes in regulation takes takes time and once it's implemented it's i mean committing billions of rands into a particular industry i mean that doesn't happen overnight from yeah. country uh, from companies also given that we're so close to the election i think a lot of companies are saying look what's a couple of months here or there let's wait to see what happens with the election particularly again around the land issue so yes mm. we've the mining chart has been done but uh, depending on which fractions in in the anc or even the likes of the eff um, depending on how strong they are uh, there's different strengths for, for land expropriation without compensation. I mean, the, the EFS version is that all land would be nationalized. And if that's the case, you're a mining company, you don't want to put money in. Um, so I think it's a case of guys just want a bit more certainty for long term. And then I think that government needs to be focusing on not mining itself, but the industries that are supporting mining. So um, there's definitely a case where being underground is dangerous. It's not great working mm. conditions. And the platinum industry was actually doing this a while ago to try support the platinum price, was focusing on industries that can use platinum. And one of them is uh, those uh, energy cells for, for energy storage. And I imagine if mm. you had a whole industry like that pop up in Rustenburg. Yeah. Okay. Well, we still want to chat about the Standard Chartered uh, Bank pleading guilty in New York for manipulating the RAND particularly against the US dollar. We'll chat about that with Michael Traherne a little bit later on. But for now, let's uh, quickly chat about some other stuff as well in relation to that.
This is Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Arabile Gumede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic 1027. It's 15 minutes after 7. As Arabile mentioned, uh, Standard Chartered reached an agreement in New York, rather with the New York State Department uh, of Financial Services, after it admitted that it manipulated currencies, including the RAND, between 2007 and 2013. And in terms of that agreement that was reached in New York, uh, Standard Chartered will have to pay a fine of about 536 million Rand and also take remedial action against employees guilty of those. Uh, contraventions. But to speak to us about it is Sipong Gwema, who is the head of comms at uh, com- at the Competition Commission of South Africa. Sipo, thank you so much for your time this morning. What do you make of um, Standard Chartered's uh, plea? Uh, morning, station. Thanks for, for having us. Uh, it's quite an interesting one, given the fact that uh, we charged the banks in uh, February 2017. And none of the banks have been able to answer to the merits except uh, Citibank, which pleaded guilty in the same month of 2017. But the rest of the banks have been uh, challenging us on technicalities. And Standard Chart has asked for further information, and uh, we haven't heard from them in terms of the merits of the case since then. What has been your interaction with the other banks, uh, such as uh, Standard Bank, for instance? We are before the competition tribunal. Um, as I said, is um, they have challenged us on certain exceptions, which is legal technicality. One, in regard regarding uh, further information. Two, some of them are challenging our jurisdiction um, in terms of this matter. And we're waiting for that judgment. It's Standard Bank. We are before the Constitutional Court um, in March uh, in relation to them seeking uh, further information from us. Um, but what is interesting in terms of this agreement and Standard Charter is that they seem to know the facts. They have pleaded to exactly what they did uh, during that period. So it's interesting that they are adopting a different approach in South Africa as opposed uh, to what they are doing in New York. You mentioned the word interesting. Does it then give um, your case um, a bit more weight as well? Because now we have one bank admitting to guilt. Are you hopeful that maybe the other banks will start cooperating in on when you weigh the merits of the case? It'll be quite lofty. Uh, to be honest, we have always been suspecting that the banks are just vexatious. Um, they have been just taking on every element um, trying to probably delay the case as soon as, as much as they can. Uh, we are hoping that uh, with this development, this may change that. Um, you know, given the fact that they have unlimited resources, so they want to challenge us in everything without going to the merits. But uh, we will use uh, whatever information we have or evidence, including this agreement, to advance and we have always maintained that we have strong, credible evidence. And uh, this uh, now um, consent uh, by the standard chapters in New York uh, demonstrates that indeed whatever we have been saying since February 2017 is true. And this is what the banks have been saying. Just before I let you go, please remind us uh, when the Constitutional Court is set to hear the matter between yourselves and Standard Bank. I think it's around the beginning of, I'm not, I don't want to say the 5th of March, mm-hmm. but it's in March, early March uh, this year.
that they will be hearing a matter between us and Standard Bank because Standard Bank wants further information with regards to the charges that we have put before the tribunal. The tribunal had ruled that it was not um, the appropriate time for us to give uh, the information to Standard Bank. There will come a time where we can give a further particular. So Standard Bank has taken us to the Constitutional Court. We will appear before the Constitutional Court defending our decision not to grant a further information. We think that what we have given them so far is sufficient. They must just answer mm. to the merits. Sipo, thank you so much for your time this morning. That's Sipo Nguema, who is the head of communications at the Competition uh, Commission of South Africa. And just to read what uh, that consent order says, that uh, Standard Chartered Traders used a variety of improper tactics to benefit the bank and themselves by maximizing profits or minimizing losses at the expense of the bank's customers or customers of other banks that were impacted by the misconduct. So we'll definitely keep a close eye with regards to that case as it involves the local banks. But for now, let's have a look at traffic. Every morning, Arabile Gumede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. So just last week, we saw uh, the uh, board of the Public Investment Corporation decide to walk out. And uh, the process of uh, appointing a new board has begun but Ditomboweni, the finance minister who is uh, responsible for appointing a new board at PIC, has said that the current board will stay in place until he's able to put another board together. So what does the walkout mean? Does it change the, uh, the risk profile of South Africa when it comes to uh, investments? And does it perhaps hurt the chances of the likes of uh, Edcon getting a bailout as well? What does this all mean? Mark Masilela, CIO and founder of Mark Fund Managers, joins us on the line. Mark, thank you so much for your time this morning. How big a deal is it that we don't have uh, a board that is you know, keen to stay? Yes, they stay on until a new board is found, but does this hurt investment sentiment? Very good morning. I think uh, in, in a nice way, because I think what they've done is a good thing. If people are starting to implicate you all, people are thinking that you've done anything wrong. I think the best thing that you can do is just let me step aside so that you can do a proper investigation. And yes, there will be some uh, transactions that will be affected, especially those that require court approval. As you just mentioned, the likes of the ad consent. But I think it's a question of not being rejected as a deal, but delayed. And I, I think maybe those still there are a bit delayed instead of them being approved in this kind of dark cloud. So yes, there will be those affected, but not that is the end of it because here we're talking not a day of two, three months. We're just talking some couple of weeks and surely there should be a new board in place. But what's very important is that the day-to-day running of the PSC should continue to be intact. If that was going to be affected, then I'll be worried because we need to note that on a continuous basis, PIC they buy and sell stocks of listed entities. Yeah, I suppose one would also say that it was, as you said, a good thing in this, in the sense that, you know, some fears were even beginning to creep up that uh, perhaps there was a little bit too much political interference in the PIC. Uh, most notably was when the PIC ended up buying uh, shares from government in Vodacom uh, and they bought those at a discount so that government would be able to fund ESCOM. Obviously, that hasn't turned out to, to, to help ESCOM too much, but would you say then that this is the right kind of cleanup? This is the cleanup we actually need. And perhaps then the chair of ESCOM, who is usually the deputy finance minister, that position should now fall to somebody else. 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> we need to know that for them to buy shares at a discount, for example, of Vodacom, so that's a wise thing for PIC to do because they got them cheap and that should be beneficial to the pensioners. And yes, whoever sold to them at a discount, that's their loss. And, you know, it has been a tradition that the deputy minister is always the chairperson of the PIC and we never had problems. So only if maybe people can prove that this is problematic, then yes, it has to be reviewed. But if now... It's only now because of whatever just happened. I don't think we should be I mean, shouting out and say this is totally wrong because it has been happening like that. The likes of men have been there. The likes of Jabumulekete have been there. And we didn't have complaints. So I don't want us to start saying it's bad to have a deputy minister, you know, as a chairperson. But yes, if the commission recommends that you will need someone else, then it's fine. But the government will always have a say because mm. they are the employer. Mm. Is there a need to to have a, a, a distinct and a massively distinct separation of powers? The, the PIC used to have a CIO and a, C, uh, a CEO, the chief investment officer and chief, uh, chief uh, uh, executive officer. Should those roles be distinctively different? Yes. That's very critical because you are in charge of making investment decisions as the chief investment officer. And as the chief executive officer, your responsibility is to drive the whole ship, you know. The FDs, your CFOs, everyone should be reporting to you. But you as the CIO, I, I, I agree with you. There should be a clear separation. But bear in mind where this is coming from. During the days of Brian Millefred, there was a separation. Brian Millefred was the CEO, and then Dr. Dan was the chief investment officer. But Dr. Dan came in from being the CIO, maybe hence. That is why he continued to double up, mm-hmm. you know, as the CIO and as the CEO. But before, we used to have that separation, and it's important to have that kind of a separation. Because the CEO, you should have the broad overview of the whole organization. How significant and important is it that we get that inquiry out the way quickly? Very critical. PIC is a very important player when it comes to our market. They are almost 13 percent, you know, of the JSC. And also for pensioners themselves, you need certainty to be sure that your money are under good hands. Mm. All right. Well, thank you so much for the time, Markwe. Appreciate it, Markwe Masilela, CIO and founder of Markwe Fund Manager, Michael uh, Fund Managers, Michael Traherne, still joining us in studio. Michael, just chat very quickly about that. Uh, PIC uh, case and and that issue as well. It certainly can hurt South Africa if we don't get this right very quickly, right? And it's, I mean, they're, they're very central to South Africa's economy. Yeah, I do think we've got more time than than some people expect. Um, a lot of the PRC's investments are of more of a passive nature. Um, they're not really involved in decision-making level. Um, so, uh, like uh, Makwe points out, obviously the case with Edcon would need board approval. So that's that's something that's central. Um, but a lot of the other investments, um, if if they did nothing for six months, it would still be okay. So um, I think it's important that we have the best people there, yeah. um, not only for South Africa perspective, but uh, government employees whose pensions that money is. Um, if if the PRC does their job, it means that future taxpayers don't have to sit with that burden of uh, looking after uh, government employees in, in their retirement. Two trillion rand in assets, right? They're usually front and center of major domestic investments in South Africa, including uh, rescue talks, as we've mentioned there, uh, for the debt-laden uh, EDCON, which would uh, require funding uh, to perhaps clear 
just how it uh, how it operates and, and its its depressed consumer environment, which has stagnated some parts of its business that would need board approval in order to happen uh, at the PIC. So that will be quite interesting. The pressure on Titumboweni now headed to you know to to budget now to to stem out and to give a clear coherent message with regards to PIC with regards to South Africa's uh, funding process on the whole. We'll have the State of the Nation address. We've had uh, um, uh, the Minister of uh, of uh, Trade and Industry, Rob Davies, say there will be a big announcement with regards to ESCOM. ESCOM CEO himself saying definitely split up the company so that it is a whole lot more sustainable. All of that still puts pressure then on Dito Mboweni to ensure that it is done in a way that is fiscally uh, you know, appropriate for South Africa's economy. How difficult is his task now if we look forward to budget? Yeah, I think he's, he, he was hoping for the next three weeks he could focus on his budget, and it's obviously not going to be the yeah. case. Um, I don't think you want to rush, rush the appointment of people to PRC. Um, I think you want to have this thought through. You want to make sure that their, their reputations are not tarnished in any way mm-hmm. um, so that you bring legitimacy and long-lasting legitimacy. This uh, constant changing uh, causes disruptions, and that's not good for, for anyone involved in the process. Should he part be a part of that board, do you think? I know that it usually falls to the deputy finance minister, but let's consider that after the election, he may not be the long-term candidate for finance minister. Should he keep himself in that position, considering he's, he's garnered respect throughout the world, especially in the investment community? Well, maybe just leave a space open on the board, and if he's not finance minister after the elections, then he can uh, jump in Pop there. Pop himself up there. But probably not until that point. Yeah. Okay. Well, an interesting conversation, and we'll continue to see how things fare at the PIC. 7.30, let's get to your news headlines. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. At 7.31, today the Pretoria High Court will hear an application brought by environmental organizations, Groundwork and Earthlife Africa for the handover of various documents relating to the judicial review of the environmental authorizations granted to two coal-fired power stations' uh, preferred bidders. To talk to us about it, we're joined by Nicole Luza, who is an attorney for Pollution and Climate Change Program at the Center for Environmental Right. Nicole, thank you so much for your time. Perhaps you can explain to us why you're hoping to be granted access to the IPP documents. Hi, Natasha. Thank you for having me. Um, yes, of course. So, as you mentioned, these are two independent coal-fired power stations, Tabamesi and Kanisa. Tabamesi will be based in Limpopo and the Waterberg, and Kanisa will be based in Mpumalanga. And they plan to build and operate their own coal-fired power stations, and they will sell their electricity to ESCOM. Um, and also, as you mentioned, we as the Centre for Environmental Rights, on behalf of Earthlife Africa and Groundwork, have instituted legal reviews to challenge the environmental authorizations in the High Court for both of these coal-fired power stations. Um, in both of these cases, we are essentially challenging the Minister of Environmental Affairs' decision to authorize these power stations without adequately taking into account the climate change impacts of these power stations. Um, and in Tabometsi's case, we're also specifically challenging the Minister's heavy reliance on an outdated electricity plan to justify authorizing these, the power stations despite the very high climate impacts of the power station. Um, so these records are supposed to be made available as part of the court process. Um, 
I mean that in saying that the Minister of Environmental Affairs and the Department are supposed to provide us access to all the records that they had before them when they made their decision um, to authorise the, um, the power stations. Right. Some of the documents have been given to us, but a number of key documents which are pivotal to the case have not been made available. So, these, um, so the High Court applications today um, are intended to get access to those documents or otherwise confirmation that those documents don't exist. Mm. Um, and those documents that we are trying to get access to are are really records that show the extent to which the minister and the department did actually take into account the climate impacts of these power stations um, and whether or not they adequately weighed these impacts, these very high impacts, um, against the alleged need for additional electricity, which the minister relies so heavily on um, in making her decision to authorise these plants. Right. We're seeing a lot of banks... uh a lot on the global stage, but also some of the local banks following suit where they are withdrawing funding for some of these uh, projects, particularly on the coal side of things. Does it then make it difficult if you're trying to build these coal-fired power stations, but where are you going to get the funding from? Yes, certainly. So Nedbank seems to be the only one to have unequivocally confirmed that they will not fund these coal ITP projects. Um, three of the other banks, First Rand, Standard Bank, and I think the DBSA have given indications that they have some concerns with these projects and probably or will not necessarily fund them either. Um, but we have called upon them and do call upon them to provide clarity as soon as possible on what their position is. Um, and we know that ABSA is also apparently behind these projects. Um, so we have warned the banks that funding um, dirty, expensive, and unnecessary coal-fired electricity is simply in contradiction with their own climate and sustainability commitments. Um, and of course, if these banks withdraw funding, it certainly sends a strong signal um, that they don't have faith in these projects and that they regard them as risky and harmful investments, and that's rightfully so. Um, I think in, in this case, um, these projects will then have to potentially look to international investors, so foreign banks, for the money. Uh, we know that Japanese and Korean companies are both involved in Tabumetsi and that Saudi Arabian company Aquapower is involved in Kanisa, so they may have to look um, to these companies for financial support. Um, this is also another another problem because these countries have committed to reduce their emissions in their own countries, but um, but they don't seem to have a problem financing harmful, um, dirty coal-fired power stations in other countries, such as South Africa. Um, but but essentially, what what it means that uh, from the from this indication that these banks are not not willing to fund these projects is that it really will become increasingly difficult for these projects to to get funding because there are more and more financial institutions realizing that funding coal is risky business um, and that it will be faced with increasing civil society opposition. Um, uh, And we are seeing more and more banks making commitments not to fund coal-fired power stations. Nicole, from your knowledge, I mean, how do we fare as South Africa when it comes to, um, you know, emissions and being part of the team that's trying to deal with climate change and doing everything that's necessary and perhaps even following the global um, standard when it comes to those kinds of things? Yes, so unfortunately, South Africa has been, um, has had its own, own climate change commitments rated as highly insufficient um, by international, by a number of other organizations. So that means that if if all countries were to apply South Africa's commitments, then we would see a three to four degree temperature 
um, increase as opposed to the two degrees that the International Paris Agreement commits to. Um, and what's even more concerning is that um, a recent report released by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change shows that even two degrees is um, certainly not enough to, to curb the, the greatest and most severe impacts of climate change, that we really need to be pushing for only 1.5 degrees Celsius temperature increase. So um, we have urged governments um, and industry certainly to, to do much more and much more urgently to address the severe threat um, of climate change and to reduce our high emissions. And this is even more concerning because South Africa as a country, has a, we've acknowledged in our own climate change policies that our country is extremely vulnerable, particularly vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. Um, and when I talk about climate change impacts, I'm talking about increased water scarcity, increased extreme weather events such as droughts and flooding, and increased temperatures. So these are the kinds of impacts that we are going to be seeing more and more, and we are already seeing these kinds of impacts. And unfortunately, the, the people who are worst affected are the poor and marginalized communities who are already feeling the impacts um, of air pollution and water pollution from coal-fired power stations and mines. Nicole, thank you so much for your time. That's Nicole Losser, who is an attorney for Pollution and Climate Change Program at the Center for Environmental Affairs. An article that you could have a look at, because I think since the beginning of the week, we've been uh, talking about ESCOM. Um, it's on the Money website, written by MoneyWeb journalist Antoinette Slabert, and it's titled, ESCOM needs more than 100 billion, says large energy user body. Uh, the body's called intensive energy user, and they're calling for a suspension of the NERSA process so you can have a look at that article for more information of course we do know that ESCOM initially applied for a 15% increase annually for the next three years but has revised its application in the last few days to 17.1 in the 2019-2020, 15.4 in the 2020-2021, and then uh, 15.5% in the 2021-2022 to financial year. So that's an article that you can have a look at that basically talks about why this user group seems to think that the NERSA process should be halted. But let's have a look at traffic. This is Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Arabile Gumede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic 1027. All right, so it's just gone. It's 7 of 42. Now, after years of steady and what was perhaps predictable growth, the pharmaceutical sector um, is entering what is clearly a period of some would say flux i suppose since many of the conditions under which it operates are are now beginning to change so let's chat to eric ruiz the ceo of pharma dynamics and just talk about you know the global uh, and growing perspectives of that pharmaceutical sector just how things uh, might change uh, locally and globally as well eric thank you so much for your time this morning uh, things are beginning to alter for your pharmaceutical sector uh, are you concerned at all and perhaps also won't you just detail for us what it is that you perhaps fear the most in this time of change good morning Arabile. Uh, thank you for accommodating me yeah, I think globally the, the business pharmaceuticals are busy changing rapidly and there's two shifts of, or two themes that we experience. And the first one is changes in the balance between power across the healthcare value chain as governments globally and locally in South Africa and the medical aid providers are exerting more pressure on pharmaceutical companies to lower their prices. And then the second um, theme involves a more reactive healthcare approach um, or changing from a more reactive healthcare approach to preventative healthcare, where 
the consumer on the street are more empowered to make decisions and to collaborate with healthcare providers. And that, of course, stimulates the inclusion of um, combining devices, software, and medicine to have a more holistic tracking and treatment approach in the healthcare arena. So not any uh, pure pharmaceutical treatment anymore, a combination of holistic healthcare. And uh, we also see an influx of alternative healthcare if you talk about complementary medicine, where patients access primary healthcare um, footprints as they first stop and make the decision, they're more informed uh, with the te- technological advances we also experience in the industry. And then, of course, um, from a South Africa, South African context, we're importing 80% of all um, active pharmaceutical ingredients. And, of course, with the uh, challenges we're experiencing on our forex, for our exchange rates, um, the margins for the pharma companies are under severe pressure here and here. Yeah, uh, so it does make it difficult then with the RAND, as you said, to offer them the best sort of prices and consumers are just really on the bargain hunt, aren't they? they they're either changing medical aids or changing the way they you know, need or do things with regards to medicine in order to fit that spectrum. Correct, that is the trend we're seeing. Of course, uh, from a pharmacodynamics perspective, we specialize in chronic medication. So it's a challenge to keep those prices competitive. And of course, the consumer expects uh, value-added interventions and behavioral change um, models that we're investing in the healthcare practitioners' practices to alter lifestyle, especially in chronic diseases. So it's, it's turning into a business where a lot of value-add investments need to be made just to keep the patient and ensure the patient remains on cost-effective treatment with all these um, initiatives on the side. Yeah. You, you spoke a little earlier about technological advancements. How difficult is it keeping up with those and ensuring that you're up to standard and, and, and really uh, you know, in tune with the market here? That's an ongoing um, opportunity in the sector, especially in South Africa. Um, if you look at more developed markets, they, they're leading the pack with regards to um, huge managed healthcare organizations investing in technology uh, advances, linking patients with their doctors, the so-called 24-7 doctor in the living room, but uh, where you can access through certain medical um, aid-funded structures. You can have access to um, doctors, to pharmacists, to monitor your condition and to stay ahead of the treatment regime and be in tune with, with uh the recipe or the the plan that the doctor prescribed. So that is busy happening slowly but surely in South Africa. I know some of the bigger medical aids are investing a lot in technological um, devices, which they impart to the healthcare practitioners in South Africa to to complete that circle. It, because of those cost issues, you'll find that consumers then uh, opt for more generic medicines. Would you attest that as a good thing or a bad thing for the industry? It's definitely a good thing. Um, generic medication has been in the South African market for more than 20 years. Um, it's proven to be effective and affordable. Um, and, and, and some stats around that, currently generic um, market share, generic volume market share in South Africa, um, 60% of all products being consumed in South Africa are generic um, products. And it's growing at about 4% from a volume perspective. So it is a growing market. Um, there's, there's proven companies that establish themselves in South Africa with regards to effective quality medicine in that market segment.
Well, Eric Ruiz, appreciate your time and uh, wish you all the best for this year as well. And uh, and hopefully the the sector is one that you, you know is one that we can be able to keep up with. Uh, for for yourself as the business as well. Eric Ross, CEO of Pharma Dynamics. This is Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Arabile Gumede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic 1027. All right, so it's 7.48. Just some other news happening right now. Listed cement producer PPC lobbying the International Trade Administration Commission, which is a government body, and that's for the imposition of tariffs in order to curb the influx of cement imports. For PPC, the cement imports, which jumped 80% between January and November 2018, worsened the subdued consumer environment and gloomy construction sector and uh, the increase comes on the back of a 71% increase in imported cement in the six months to the end of September 2018. So they're seeking tariffs on cement imports in order to, to help them and that industry. So construction as an industry itself has continued to suffer, Michael. It, it hasn't been uh, the greatest of times, particularly since, what, one would say 2011, 2012 at, at the very best. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting debate. Uh, Should you have cheaper imports or not? And I suppose it depends on how long that supply is going to last. Because if your cheaper imports come in, PPC goes out of business, and then the cheaper imports are no longer cheap, then obviously it's a problem. But if it's cheap continuously, then if you're in the construction sector, why would you not want cheaper cement? Because then you can afford to do more projects, and then by extension, employ more people. So it's always a tricky uh, balancing act. I see PPC, though, are launching a new brand to try to distinguish themselves from uh, the imported uh, cement saying we're better quality i think it's called super cement or something is the brand that they're launching and uh, i suppose that's what competition does is it forces you to be better mm. and, and that's the difficulty though is that you know trying to be better in a time like this means that sometimes you you know or could mean shall i say that you sometimes compromise on quality do you think that that becomes a problem now because we're continuously looking for the next bargain yeah definitely i mean i don't think it's it's a secret that uh, uh, when you in tough times you try cut cut corners where you can and get away with what you can um in the case of ppc and they had a trading statement yesterday that said that uh, they're selling slightly uh, less units of cement over the last six months and that's as the market has actually contracted by five percent so even though it's a tough environment it is it is contracting um but in this face that ppc is saying look we're not we're rather uh, keep our margins here and they're actually going to uh, they from january the increasing prices between i think they said eight and twelve percent um so they're saying we don't really mind about market share at the moment let's make sure that we focus on our margins and then we'll take it from there well that will be uh, one to look out for definitely tash i have a fun fact mm. it's an interesting one michael will probably know this one because he probably looks at these companies on a daily basis all the time so apparently the position well not even apparently the the numbers speak for themselves the positions of apple microsoft and amazon have been flip flopping since um I suppose the wipeout of iPhone's uh, stock price late last year. So they changed hands seven times in the sense that when we're looking at the most valuable American company. So let's, for instance, um, Apple claimed the title of the most valuable American company for the first time in more than two months. And around midday, Microsoft 
took that spot. And as the day went, the two tech titans basically went back and forth until trading ended with Microsoft being the leader at a market value of $823 billion. And the article here in the New York Times says that the mantle has changed hands seven times among the three companies. Three of those switches have taken place over the past week as these companies reported their quarterly results. And Alphabet has lurked not far behind the whole time. Yeah, and that, uh, that comes on the back of their share price, I think, falling 2.5% as well uh, as their capital spending also jumps 80% amid the cloud and YouTube expansion plans that they also have in place. That's that's Alphabet, the, the parent company of Google. How much faith do you put in those tech firms now, considering how rocky things have been of late? Well, considering that only half the planet has access to internet, I'd say their future still looks pretty rosy. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll keep that sense of optimism. Why don't we? <laughs> All right. After this, we'll speak to Peter Major. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. At 7.53, President Cyril Ramaphosa uh, tackled major industry concerns about ESCOM, the security of investments and land tenure at the mining endeavor that is currently underway in Cape Town. But on the side of that, we had Anglo-American CEO Mark Kurifani saying that ESCOM is the biggest risk to the business in the short term. And to talk to us about uh, Mark Kurifani's sentiments and around the mining endeavor as a whole is Peter Major, who's a mining analyst at KD's Corporate Solutions. Peter, thank you so much for your time this morning. Let's start off with Mark Kurifani's comments. I mean, what do you make of his statements around ESCOM? Look, he's just telling us what everybody knows. The difference is when you're running big, gigantic companies that employ tens of thousands of people, generate billions of rands, ESCOM is probably a little more serious in your life then if you're like me and probably a lot of the other people on the street, we want electricity when we wake up in the morning, turn on the light, turn on the stove, maybe want to turn on the TV. But we all know it. Eskom is very, very important in our life, but in mining, Eskom is life and death. If people are underground and you don't have regular electricity, those big ventilation fans stop. The fresh air compressors stop. The hoist can stop. And, and we heard it from a lot of the producers yesterday about the stop-starts they're getting, how they have to redo their smelter operations because they don't know when the electricity is going to stop or they do know when it's going to stop and they have to plan for it. And that's just getting constant supply. If you start looking at the prices, the way Eskom's going up, instead of being 5% of your cost, 10% of your cost, now it's 20 25% of your cost. So I think... Mr. Kudafani put it very diplomatically, and he could have put it a lot more forceful, but he doesn't want to upset people. But this is real, and it's not getting better. I know you've been going to the mining in Daba for a very long time. I mean, what has been the mood this year? We have Gwede Mantashe as the new mines minister. Since you've arrived and the conversations you've had with people, um, what? how are people feeling, rather? Look, it's... I would say it's the best mood in probably seven or eight years. The last time we had a mood that was really good is when commodities were shooting up after the the fall. Remember back in um, 2015, our commodity prices really fell low. They fell to almost 10-year lows. 
And in early 2016, they started taking off. So there was a good mood. There was optimism in 2016, but nothing like now. This is this was a nice optimism. People aren't shooting off fireworks. They're not dancing on tables. But there's more people here talking about coming back to South Africa than I've seen in six or seven years. And it, I think attendance is probably up a little bit. It's subdued, but it's nice optimism. And people are very appreciative that we've got a mining minister who seems to be spending the whole week here. He's giving one talk after another. He's rubbing shoulders with people. He's not always saying what we'd want to hear, but he's saying much, much better things than our previous mining ministers. And we had the president come and, and spend a couple hours yesterday, and that's never happened. So that shows serious intent, and it, it, it's really it's made a big difference. It's very good. Peter, thank you so much for your time. That's Peter Major, who is a mining analyst at KD's Corporate Solutions. Normally around about this time, I turn the attention to Arabile and I ask him, do you have a hot <laughs> news item? But this time we're going to switch things up a little bit. Michael Trahan has something. Yeah, so Bloomberg uh, yesterday came out with an article titled, This is what it takes to be in the top 1% around the world. Um, and South Africa makes the list as one of the countries compared. So if you live in India, you only need only uh, $81,000 a year to be in the top 1% in India. South Africa, $162,000 a year. So uh, this is based on 2017 US dollars. So you're looking at roughly 2.2 million rand, um, which solidly puts you in the top income bracket. But I think that number's probably lower than most people expect top one percent one out of every uh, hundred people you that person um not I can quite firmly, i can <laughs> firmly confirm that it's a no from me <laughs> firmly without without a shadow of a doubt without any quiver in my voice the absolute most confidence in that but answer. we're working on it <laughs> you'll be getting there more mc gigs guys <laughs> hopefully that comes to the fore so president donald trump's state of the nation address uh-huh. may have been a little too early but any of you catch up with it yes so i was quite surprised that his tone this time was not as dark as what we normally anticipated yeah. to be especially at the rallies he's still convinced that he's going to build this wall and he did ask that, you know, between Nancy Pelosi and uh, and everyone else, they should all just work together to reach some solutions. But um, the one thing he he still kept on was on the the immigration thing. He still yeah. used, I think the word was um, savage gangs to pour into the country and yeah. something about lethal drugs. So that didn't change. But the overall tone was a little better you know so there were there were varying and sort of differing sentiments around what kind of speech he would deliver and and you know one segment of the market you know sort of said he was going to have one that was unifying or or bringing unity while the other ones were just like he's going to bring out a, a completely harsh message and i and i really think that he brought out a little bit of everything you know there was a a set of new uh uh congress congresswomen who were in in the house as well and they were all dressed in white and you see them stand for particular points because they all clapped when when Donald Trump mentioned the fact that you know it's the first time that they've got so many women in the House of uh, the House of Representatives, and he made it seem like it was an achievement he had done, <laughs> and yet it was because you know they, because people were trying to go against him that this happened and not necessarily for him. And then he went on to mention things like abortion and the like as well, and the ladies then didn't stand up to clap. So it was a little bit varying, a little bit weird, and. I'm not so sure that the the State of the Union is as strong 
as he would like to call it. But certainly an yeah. interesting one. We'll look forward now to President Cyril Ramaphosa's one, right? And that's out on Thursday. I want to see how long that one is going to be because yesterday's one was 82 minutes. Yeah, but that was because of a whole lot of clapping. Like they stood up for every, it's every sentence was a stand up and clap. But anyway, that brings us to the end of the uh, end of our show today. Thank you for joining us.